0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 60. Isaiah, chapter 60. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, and I hope you will if you didn't bring your own, you'll find Isaiah 60 begins on page 723. Isaiah 60. In a few minutes, I'll ask you to follow along as I read Isaiah 60, the whole chapter, But uh, there's a bit of a heads up uh, here for you. In my reading, I'll read references to God as they occur in the Hebrew text. So the Lord, capital L, small capital O-R-D, is Yahweh in the text. And so I'll read it like that. And I understand uh, Yahweh to be the revealed personal and covenant name of the one true and living God that I believe often, if not always, will correspond to the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus even. And uh, so I'll be reading it Yahweh whenever it's capital L, small capitals, O-R-D, because that's what's actually in the text. And God, of course, is God, but here it's Elohim, and it's one of the coolest things in, in all of Scripture, at least so far as I'm concerned, because it reveals God to be a plurality, but with uninterrupted and perfectly united singular purpose. That is a singular verb. So a plural subject, Elohim, literally gods, but with a singular verb, singular purpose, working together. And if we can read into it the understanding of the New Testament, we might even say that's a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, another frequent Hebrew reference to God that's not found actually in Isaiah 60 is uh, the Lord, capital L, and it's lowercase o-r-d, Uh, That's Adonai usually as it is uh, pronounced, Adonai. It literally means my Lord, which is more of a functional title for he is Lord. If you look though at at verse 1 of chapter 61 of Isaiah, you'll see it there in in the uh, uh, compound, Lord our God, Uh, L-O-R-D, capital L, lowercase O-R-D is Adonai. Um, which literally means, as I said, my Lord, and it's more of a functional title. So, so Lord, caps, Yahweh, God, Elohim, plural subject, singular verb, and Adonai, Lord, uh, uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. With all that's been going on around us these days, I've been doing some reading of history, and it's Pastor Yuri's fault. Several weeks ago, we were in one meeting or another and Yuri made reference to Mark Knoll's What Happened to Christian Canada? What Happened to Christian Canada? Now, Mark Knoll is a world-class and world-renowned church historian. For many years, he was professor of church history at the well-known Wheaton College until he was appointed Francis A. McEnany, professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. Yes, that University of Notre Dame in my home state of Indiana. Oddly perhaps Mark Knoll is also an evangelical Christian researching writing and teaching at and from one of the most well-established world-class and world-renowned Roman Catholic research, research or, universities in the world remarkable Anyway back to Yuri we we were talking about big changes in the culture and how they put pressure on the church and we were talking about the church at large in the world yes but also and especially Bethesda Church here at home. We are not immune to these pressures. We are not immune to these changes. And they pressure us to bend and conform to the culture's mandates rather than to the biblical Christian gospel mandate. Now this is not new, of course. The biblical Christian gospel church has always been a contra-cultural affair. But these pressures do seem to be accelerating and intensifying. During that conversation, Pastor Uri encouraged us to get a hold of and read Mark Knoll's little book, only 57 pages soaking wet, what happened to Christian Canada for a reliable Christian historian's take on the decline of the contemporary Canadian church. So I did, but I didn't stop there, of course. Why not buy 10 books when only one will have done, right? Or, as is in this case, three. I also picked up his bigger, more expansive, comprehensive, and in-depth study, A History of Christianity in the United States and Canada, second edition, as well as church sociologist Sam Reimers, caught in the current, British and Canadian evangelicals in an age of self-spirituality. All three of them have something important to say about the contemporary church, where we are, how we got here, and in the case of Reimer at least, what we might do about it. This is from the back of his Caught in the Current, quote, evangelical Christianity is known for its defense of traditional Christian teachings and resistance to liberalizing trends. Many Western evangelicals themselves do not yet realize how their faith is being reshaped by the modern zeitgeist. fed zeitgeist into the Google machine and uh, it referred to the beloved OED, the Oxford English Dictionary definition. And zeitgeist is the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. The narration goes on, caught in the current explores how and why Western evangelicals are changing. Church attendance is declining. Conservative moral positions are unpopular. And young people are drifting away from the faith. Evangelism is avoided. So few are joining congregations. Yet these surface changes are only symptoms of a more profound shift that church leaders have not fully apprehended. In other words what we're doing isn't working. Or isn't it? Did it ever work? I'm not talking about Bethesda Church necessarily, and certainly not exclusively or even especially. Personally, I believe we've done and we're doing all right over the years. I've come to believe the smaller local expression of the church is more likely to be truly biblical and gospel Christian. So Lord Jesus, save us from success, at least man's version of success. Frankly, I'm more worried and concerned about the larger, more successful expressions of the church. I wonder what sort of disciples and whose disciples are being developed in these churches. I'm afraid that the bigger, bigger must be better philosophy will in the end be found idolatrous. From time to time, I've characterized this approach or philosophy in the church as the mistaken belief and commitment that in order to reach those in the world today, the contemporary church must become more worldly. I do not believe that, and I will not believe that, and here's why. There's nothing in the Bible that requires or leads us to believe that, that to reach those in the world, the church must become more worldly. In the Bible, the church is created, established, sustained, and made fruitful only by the Holy Spirit. Currently, we have a part to play, cer- certainly rather, we have a part to play once we're saved, but it's the Spirit who works in us. The thing that causes me most concern is this bigger must be better philosophy seems to have infected the hearts and minds of our people, authentic Christians, even here at Bethesda, and some of them have gone chasing after it to bigger and better churches, So what can we do? What should we do? What must we do? Well, I believe by looking backward to the ancient words of God's prophets, we'll be able to see forward, even into the glorious future, the Lord God himself has set before his people, Yes, Israel and the church. Now, the last thing I want us to hear before we read our text is that Isaiah 60 and 61 are pure biblical prophecy. And biblical prophecy is often fulfilled more than once, even several times throughout history until it is fulfilled finally, once and for all, in the ultimate sense. We've talked about this. It's called the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy. There's a mouthful of theology for you, the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy, and biblical prophecy almost always has a proper interpretation or meaning to those people who first received it in their place and time, but there was also and will also be almost always an additional meaning sometime later in history, such as there might have been several fulfillments in history. This is massively important for understanding this particular passage or these particular chapters of prophecy because it means that more than one way of interpreting it and teaching it is both correct and necessary. This prophecy of scripture existed for 700 or so years before Christ as purely Hebrew Jewish prophecy to and for God's people, Israel then Jesus Christ showed up on the scene. And suddenly these prophetic passages mean something more, not different, something more. Then the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, and and suddenly these prophetic passages mean something even more. Then the church of Jesus Christ is established among Jews and Gentiles, and suddenly these prophetic passages mean something even more than they did before that. And when Jesus comes again and new heavens and a new earth are established forever, the truth of these prophetic passages will be revealed in final and ultimate meaning. And by that, I mean in Christ. Probably the clearest way of putting this dynamic fulfillment of prophecy into use here is to say that there was and there is a proper Hebrew Jewish understanding of Isaiah 60 and 61. There was and there is a proper biblical gospel Christian understanding of Isaiah 60 and 61. And there will be in the future a proper, more proper, a a complementary biblical gospel Christian end times understanding of Isaiah 60 and 61. Finally, as I read and as as we process Isaiah this morning together, There will be a lot of yous in the text. You'll notice that, you, and you, and you, and this promise is for you, and this is, that was for you. We'll need to be sure we know who you is if we are to understand God's word here. Okay, I think we might be ready to dig into Isaiah 60, and then 61 after it several weeks from now. Do follow along with me as I read from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 60 beginning with verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. And his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels at Midian or of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of Yahweh. All Kadars' flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth will serve you; they will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead, in the lead are the ships. In the lead, rather, in the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold, to the honor of Yahweh your God, your Elohim, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you in favor, I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you, All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of Yahweh, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your Elohim will be your glory." Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand the smallest, a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In its time, I will do this swiftly. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that in the minutes uh, that we have remaining here, that you will speak to us. Speak to us as to what it might mean for us to arise, for us to shine, for us to realize that our light has come. Help us, Lord, as your people, as your children, to step into that role that you have eternally intended for us created in your image, bearing your likeness, representing you on the earth in our day and time. Lord, help us our, day, our place and time. Help us, Lord, to recognize that when you adopted in us into your family by the Holy Spirit, as we came to submit ourselves to your Lordship and to confess our sins and repent of them, And to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, that we became transformative, that we can actually be conformed and transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and we can become now reflecting mirrors of your glory, of your light, the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Our primary local text for this morning is Isaiah 60, verses 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to read them from my English Standard Version. You still, it's not all that different from the NIV that you have there in your pew racks. It reads, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising." There is a huge and getting huger temptation being offered today to the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's being offered as good, right, and true, even wise and necessary, but not only especially today, perhaps as never before. As I said earlier, this is not really anything new, but it is something that seems to be accelerating and becoming more intense. Now that sounds like hyperbole, I know, but but hear me out. In deliberate, persistent, consistent, Mutual resistance to this huge and getting huger temptation, God's people must first teach, preach, and live the opposing truth, allowing the stark and striking contrast to expose it to the light of the gospel. Second, refuse to let it take root in and among us. Thirdly, call it out. And fourth, encourage one another and partner with others to disprove it." Now, what is this temptation, you ask? The huge and getting huger temptation being offered to us these days is turning the impossible, biblical, Christian faith, life, and ministry into something doable, solvable, achievable, attainable, even accessible by us, and for us, in our own strength, and in our own judgment, in our own time, and at our own pace. In fact, the way we grow churches today, if we're savvy, is to make people basically as comfortable as possible, make church as fun as possible, give people basically what they want, tell them basically what they want to hear, and then sprinkle in a little magic dust from the Bible and all will be well, and your church will grow. And it will. Now, most would say that sounds good, right, and true. Aren't aren't these basic goals of church today? To get people to church, which is not all that easy to do, to make sure everybody learns something, cause them to feel something, and it's got to be something good, unless it's a tearjerker with a nice ending, maybe even take home something useful. Isn't that really what we're trying to do here at church today? Well, not really. At least, not if we want to be truly biblical or historically Christian about it. If those are our basic goals of church. If those were our basic goals of church, then they'd be, and we'd be, too, too small. They'd reveal we have no more than a religion about God, and indeed a false religion about a false God of our own imaginations. Rather than a saving, transforming, sustaining, and ongoing relationship of love for and partnership with the one true and living God, in the Bible who revealed himself in Jesus Christ as well as through his written word, illumined by the Holy Spirit. And I think our passages, Isaiah 60 and then 61 after it, provide us with much needed truth that will, or at least it could if we allow it to, correct our religiosity, convict us to repentance, and renew our relationship of love, faith, trust, and partnership with God in Christ Jesus. You have in the upper right hand left hand corner of your bulletins a central truth of the message it's really a central truth of the series here it is one more time the lord god promises to all his people and by all his people i mean israel in the old what we call the old testament in the hebrew scriptures and the church in the new right up until today the lord god promises to all his people future glory so we might glorify him eternally and exalt Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Now, for the next few minutes, let's see what we can see by way of introduction from this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 60, knowing that we'll be going right through to Isaiah 61 in the following weeks. And here's, here's just one uh, point, of, point of truth, bit of truth that I'd have you kind of process as we go forward. It's number one, when we are awake to his promises to us. When we are awake to his promises to us and arise to his purposes in us and for us. And arise to his purposes in us and for us. God's people, Israel then, and the church now, will be a light to the nations Isaiah 49, 6, and the light of the world, Matthew 5 and verse 14. One more time. When we are awake to his promises to us and arise to his purposes in us and for us, God's people, Israel then, in Isaiah 60, and the church now, will be a light to the nations and the light of the world. Our first step into God's glorious and eternal future for his people is for us, Israel then and the church now, to wake up to the reality of His forever promises to us and the eternal purposes that He intends to accomplish and will accomplish in and through us. If and when we wake up to God's promises to us, if and when we arise to God's purposes in and through us, if and when we realize that our light has dawned in Christ, we will shine as the light his light of the world and a light, his light to the nations. Now, we might want to pause for a moment to say, wait a minute, I I thought that was Jesus. Wasn't it he who said, I am the light of the world? Why, yes, he did in John chapter 8 and verse 12. But let's finish out that verse. That's just John chapter 8, verse 12a. Let's look at B and C. When Jesus continued on to say, "Whoever, there's that there's that whoever again. They make it crazy, whoever. He really he really means whoever. Come, whoever. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." That's a promise. Put together, I am, Jesus said, the light of the world, period. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For sure, our light isn't ours at all. It's Jesus' light. It's, in fact, Jesus reflected in and through us. But once his redemptive work was finished at the cross... Once he was raised from the dead for our justification before God, and once the Holy Spirit adopted us as children of God, he's been engaged in a miraculous process of transforming us into his image, into his light, reaching the nations. So how does Isaiah put it earlier in his prophecy, chapter 49 and verse six? Yahweh says, it is too light a thing that you, there's that you again, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth." And the you there in Isaiah 49.6 sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Or at least the Messiah and the Holy One of Israel. That isn't until we track back a bit to the beginning of the chapter, where we read in verse 3, for example, and Yahweh said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the you here is Israel, indeed, in the whole chapter, Israel. And then move forward a bit further to the last bit of verse 7. We'll call it verse 7C and D. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. Israel. So who is the you in each of these passages? The you here is the people of God, Israel, then at that time and for 700 years after it? And the you is the people of God, the church, since its founding at Pentecost? Which also means the you is us, the people of God, Bethesda Church. Imagine that. Oh, and and did I mention that back in Isaiah 60, the you there is also the people of God, Israel, then, and the you is the people of God, the church, since its founding at Pentecost, which means also the you there is us, the people of God, Bethesda Church, too. But in order to get there, in order to find it, because right from the first verse we're reading about you, arise, shine, for your light has come, your light has come. And the glory of the Lord, or the glory of Yahweh, has risen upon you. Who are you? Look with me then ahead at Isaiah 60 in verse 10 and 14. We got a little hint, didn't we, when we turned the corner to verse 10. Foreigners will build up your walls. Well, do I have a wall? I don't think I have a wall. And their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So to be technical, the you in Isaiah 60 is Jerusalem which is the capital of God's chosen people, Israel, both in the conceptual sense and also in the topographical or geographical sense, the place of its planting. However, the importance and eternal standing of Jerusalem and Israel both is that they have been chosen by the sovereign Lord as his dwelling place. And guess what? us too. The sovereign Lord has made a deliberate and personal choice, choice to reside within his people and among his people. And that's what's the word? You Certainly there are several places in New Testament scripture to which we could refer, but we need to go no further than Revelation 21.3, which speaks of our eternal hope. There we we'll read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne of heaven, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's us too. And so we we hear the words of Isaiah 60 and verse 1 more fully and more deeply and more meaningfully, I hope. Arise, shine, for your light has come, people of God Israel, church at large, and Bethesda church, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. So when we are awake to his promises to us and arise to his purposes in us and for us, God's people Israel then and the church now will be not might be not should be not can be will be a light to the nations and the light of the world verse 2 of Isaiah 60 now there are only three verses so we're doing all right verse 2 of Isaiah 60 I got to tell you this so so I was thinking 30 seconds before Lynn called me this morning at eight o'clock Looking over my message, right for you know, the last time, probably. I'm thinking this is a little long. We've got Len coming too. He's going to take 10 or 15 minutes. I don't think there's anything here. I can... what am I going to cut? I don't think there's. Any... I cut as much as I can. The phone rings and Len says I'm not going to be there. And I said, praise the Lord. And I told him the story and he laughed. He said the Lord had it figured out the whole time. I said that's right. So I get to to preach another 10 or 15 minutes. Don't take everything so seriously. Verse 2 of Isaiah 60 reads in my ESV Bible, For behold, great darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The second thing I want us to think about here as we process this just, just for a few minutes At the very time darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the peoples, God's people, Israel then, and the church now, will function as his light to the nations, his light of the world, and his glory will be displayed in us and through us. Now, you might think that sounds a whole lot like point number one. I admit that it does, but here's the thing. Verse two sounds a lot like verse one in context. Verse 1 is like in a vacuum. Light in a vacuum. We're light. We're the light of the world. Okay, we're light of the day. Where do we go? Where do we go? Verse 2 gives the context darkness. Where your light shines, where you will arise, because your light has dawned, it will be dark, and your light will be absolutely vital to bring people out of the darkness. That's verse 2. The antidote to darkness, even deep darkness, that might cover the earth and blind the peoples, is what? Light. Light. And there is only one true light, and that is the light of God in Christ Jesus who can lift the most persistent sort of darkness, which is unbelief. Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, is writing in his 60th chapter here primarily about days ahead of him by about 700 years or so when the true light will have come into the world Jesus Christ who was and is Yahweh the eternal son of the eternally living and true, triune God and while that is arguably true if we understand if we, if we if we believe and if we obey the Bible it's not primarily what verse 2 of Isaiah 60 is about. He's talking about the place of God's dwelling place, which is even now within and among his people as light to the nations. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. It's where, as you know, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five, six, and seven are the Sermon on the Mount. And he is here in the Sermon on the Mount specifically uh, particularly instructing his disciples how to live as Jesus' followers. And one of the first things he shares, not the first thing, but it's almost one of the, it's one of the first things, is verses 14 to 16. And here, Jesus reiterates And recasts this profound and surprising truth from Isaiah chapter 60 and and, and other places more directly for the most challenged among us, that is, his disciples then and his disciples now, and, and you know, I'm one of them. Challenged, that is. Also his disciple. Verse 14. You have any disciples here? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket without the glass here. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus recasting and reiterating of that truth. We are his light in the world, his light to the nations. So whatever the darkness, the darkness of some secret besetting sin, the darkness of self and selfishness, the darkness of an inner rebellion against God, the darkness of depression, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of lack of faith and fear for the future, there are many others. Embrace the light of confession and repentance. Embrace the light of repentance and submission embrace the light of the gospel, God's word, and God's spirit to overcome doubts and fears. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. I've shared this story before, but I really didn't understand this passage, what Jesus was getting at until I was in Saudi Arabia. And there are thousands of miles, not hundreds, Thousands of square miles of desert, where all you can see is desert. And at night, it gets really, really dark, pitch dark. But you look out into the distance, and you see the light of a city or a town over there and over there. The, the problem is that if you were to, to try to walk there, you'd be going for days, because it's not just over the hill and through the woods. It's 100 miles away, and, and, but because it's so dark, the light is so bright, you can see that far. This is what Isaiah is getting at. The darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness, the peoples, but you we are his light in the world. That's his whole point. Shine! So that people can come from 100 miles off, walking and becoming weary for days before they get there, metaphorically. They can finally find Jesus. That's the point. At the very time darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness, the peoples, God's people, Israel then and the church now, will function as His light to the nations, His light to the, of the world, and His glory will be displayed in us and through us. That is, if we're holding on to the true light of Jesus Christ ourselves. Finally, we come to point number last, verse number last, it's number three, Isaiah 60, which reads, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. As a result of our arising, this is number three, as a result of our arising and shining in the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and in the light of his glorious gospel, Jesus himself will draw peoples from all the nations to himself, and he will do it through us. One more time, as a result of our arising and shining in the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and in the light of his glorious gospel, Jesus himself will draw peoples from all the nations to himself, and he will do it through us. Once again, Jesus himself recast and reiterated this truth in what we've come to call the Great Commission. You knew I was going there, didn't you? From the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, all authority In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But we have to believe Him, don't we? We have to believe him. That he's speaking to us. That he's speaking about us. We are the contemporary yous in all these verses from Isaiah and Matthew. Israel, then. Israel again, in God's good timing. But right now, it's us, it's the church. And we are the contemporary use in all these verses from Isaiah and Matthew, the words of Yahweh and the words of Jesus, both saying precisely the same thing, you are my light in the world. Go. Be. Shine. Will we accept Jesus' great commissioning of us in these times of deepening darkness? It's not like we have to set up a ceremony. It's not like we have to be anointed with anything he told his disciples to go and he tells us to go as well and to do what baptize and teach to obey will we serve as extensions and as reflecting mirrors of his light in the world well verse 3 said and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising that's a promise finally i'd like to ask you to turn with me to revelation chapter 20. One, Revelation chapter 21. I'm just going to read it. I just want you to see an application of what these verses are pointing to into the future. And it is a great and glorious future. It is a future that we can look forward to, but we cannot sit back and wait for. It is a future that we will step into. It is a future that should incentivize us to be light in the world. Not that we earn our way there, but that we bring people with us. That's the point. Verse 9 of Revelation chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the land, of the lamb rather. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear g- glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, and the third ag- agate. The fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth praise, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Listen to what comes next. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory bring it in they will they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let's pray together. God our Father, we are humbled by the truth and the goodness the rightness and righteousness, the compassion and mercy, the warnings and releases of your word. We have to believe it. For it to benefit us, we have to believe it. For us to be in our place doing our thing that you have ordained for us from before the beginning of the world. We have to believe it. I pray Lord that as we begin this series that we will do so in faith, in hope, in love, with joy. Knowing that you are going to reveal more to us about your place and your plan for us. And not just us, but for the church, and not just the church, but for all your people, Israel and the church together in your word, in your plans. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all of these who have come. Thank you for those who are listening or watching over the live stream, either today or sometime in the near future. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to take up this space for about 60 years now on this corner and uh, this congregation for almost 80. We pray that you would not remove our lampstand, and we pray that you would continue to do your work in us and through us, that we might be your light, even to nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Lord, thank you for this little snippet in the life of Jesus's early days that your servant, Simeon, confirmed that Jesus is the Christ son of the living God. He would serve as a light to the Gentiles and as glory for Israel. I, I pray, Lord, that we will continue to follow after him no matter what. I pray your blessing upon each person and family represented here, those who are not here, Lord. We pray for the Trithart family in the loss of Gloria. pray your peace and comfort and consolation to be with them as well. Go with us now into our week. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.